This is Dion Blumenrader with Big Hoss One Sauce, and you're listening to the best show on all things barbecue with my man, Greg Rempe. You're listening to KCBS, all the barbecue hits, all the time, all the time, or mostly on time. And it's time for a KCBS weather break. It's currently 62 degrees outside. Uh, Wait, uh, it might be 72 degrees. We're not exactly sure. Uh, Let me check. Ah, shit. We have no idea. So let's split the difference and go with 67. Yes, it's definitely 67 at KCBS. Uh, We think. We'll do it live. Okay. Well, do it live! I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live! So to get that perfect barbecue, you use wood. Are you sure it's safe? Whatever. We put the lighter fluid on, strike your match, and... Should we call the fire department? That might be a good idea. Welcome to the really big Barbecue Central show. This is the show where we talk about all things that are important in the world of barbecue and grilling. The show originating from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame city. Bomb City, USA. Cleveland, Ohio. The barbecue capital of the North Coast. I am your program host, Greg Rempe. Happy to have you aboard here on your Tuesday evenings, a live fire fun and frivolity show. If you want to get in contact with the show, follow me during off show hours. Here's how you do all that stuff. You can get in touch with the show by sending an email to Greg at the BBQ Central Follow us on all the social media channels at BBQ Central Show. And be sure to subscribe to the show podcast feed on your favorite podcast platform. Anything else you want to find out about the show can be found at the main website, the BBQ Central And here's what's happening in case you get the newsletter. Typically, in a second Tuesday of the month, you will find the first hour being taken up by number one, Meathead from AmazingRibs.com, number two, Robert Moss from RobertFBoss.com. But since we have recently put in a 2023 class of Barbecue Central Show Guest Hall of Fame members, what do we do when we put in a new class? We reach out to the new class. We bring them in for what? The origin stories. And first up for the origin stories here this evening is the second Tuesday of the month. Regular guest in the first hour, 35 past segment, Robert F. Moss. So Meathead has relinquished his normal segment. We'll do the first hour with Robert Moss and we'll do the deep dive origin story that you've come to know and love. Learn all about Robert from when he was born and how it has progressed to where the career is today. So looking forward to that. And then we will move to the second hour where we will have a longtime sponsor of the show, a person who steers the ship of a company that builds some of the most prolific and sexy barbecue pits out there. Ryan Zabril joins us on the show. 
Ryan Zaboral joins me on the show. The hell is wrong? So we'll get the status of 2023, how fiscal year has looked like for him, especially compared to the last couple of years. We'll take a peek into the first half of next year. Overarching goals for 2024, new products, trends in the industry that he might be seeing. So Ryan's Borrell in the second hour leading off and then closing out the show. It's been six years, seven years since we had him on the first time. Big shot now. Big shot back then. The pitmaster of Heath Riles Barbecue, Heath Riles, joins the show. That's a huge hammer out of the bullpen. The last time I talked to Heath Riles, he was Victory Lane Barbecue branded. He has since gone through a tremendous rebrand. Really hit the rub, sauce, products, market. He had all of those. Now he's added more. Now he's gone through the rebrand, so we'll talk about all of that. He now has a YouTube channel, of course, which you know about. And he's launched a podcast with might be 30, 40 episodes or so. So really getting the social media aspect things and all the digital media platforms to try and help promote and grow that brand, do the digital storytelling, what have you. So really excited to catch up with Heath Riles as he closes the show. So that's how it sets up tonight. Robert Moss in the first hour with the origin story. And then Ryan Zaboral from Pits and Spits, Heath Riles from Heath Riles Barbecue closing out the show. Don't forget you can follow me socially, Instagram, X. TikTok and Snapchat at BBQ Central Show. And we say good evening to those of you watching tonight through one of the video streaming platform options. You can do it through Facebook and Twitch slash BBQ Central Show. You can also watch over on YouTube, which is youtube.com slash at BBQ Central Show, where we do have a new YouTube poll question of the week. And I'm asking everybody this, including all guests. Even if money wasn't a factor, you prefer prime beef over Wagyu. And currently, we are at a deadlock of 50-50. 50% of you saying, yes, you prefer prime over Wagyu. And 50% of you saying, no, you do not prefer prime over Wagyu. For me, gun to head. I'm going prime over Wagyu especially if I'm able to source it myself. That's just my flavor profile. That's just my palate. But we are deadlocked currently right now, although nose just tipped the scale and they are winning. I'm sorry, nose is what I meant to say. So we'll see how it goes through the rest of the show. I'll ask Robert Moss as we lead off the origin story, and then we'll also ask Ryan and Heath in the second hour, and I'll do my best to give you an update at the end of the show and throughout the show, of course. So let's start here this evening. I'm not going to break down the Rod Gray interview from last week in gory detail. The interview, no doubt, solidifies one of two things. One, you think he's doing a great job handling the American Royal situation. Or two, there's a lot of talking and not a lot of discernible information being put out as to how this isn't going to be an issue going forward. So whatever side of the fence that you fall on, I mostly hope that you enjoyed the extended segment with Rod Gray last week. I certainly appreciate that he hang in there for basically an hour and fielding those questions. Quick correction on my part from last week. I did ask Rod during the questioning why there was no lead reps 
put in place this year, but after re-listening to the other shows, he did indeed say that there were lead reps at this event. That was my mistake. And I've spent a lot of time listening to the segment that we did over the course of the week. I've also read through a lot of comments and reactions that folks have sent in. And I want to tie this up with a few summary thoughts. Like many of you, I do think it was odd that Rod said he has no job at the American Royal and that he pushes a broom and picks up trash. I did find that odd. But if that's the case, and he's not allowed to have anything to do with the inner workings of the contest, then I'm going to take him at his word. I don't know the ins and outs of a contest or what the CEO is responsible for at contests. And evidently, it's nothing to do with the inner workings of said contest. However, I do know that the American Royal is the Kansas City Barbecue Society's the biggest event and biggest customer each year. I also know how business is run. So even if there's nothing for him to do as relates to the contest, which again, we all kind of think is odd, there are numerous and valuable things for a CEO to do at the contest that doesn't involve the intricacies of running the contest itself. For instance, hanging out with the folks, the American Royal, and building deeper relationships with them. The Royal probably has their sponsors attending the event. Why not help them build even more value to their sponsors? Maybe those sponsors could cross over and sponsor the KCBS in some way. I'm sure the CEO position has some responsibility in securing sponsorship business over the course of a fiscal year. To that end, I'm sure the KCBS sponsors are also attending the Royal. Why not stay at least as long as they stay and deepen those relationships as well and doing it in person? Maybe there's an opportunity to mine those sponsors on information for new sponsors that also might be interested in coming on board with the KCBS and a potential sponsorship opportunity. Of course, you have the public relations piece that I mentioned last week during the interview. And I understand Rod said he doesn't want to steal the spotlight from anybody, but I don't think anyone's thinking that the CEO is stealing anything from them, perhaps just the opposite. I think they would really appreciate being able to memorialize their achievement with a photo of the top rank official there at KCBS. I mean, everybody loves being in pictures with important people. By the way, doing the PR stuff also yields social media content, a lot of it, and it's all evergreen stuff that can be reused year after year after year. I'm sure the social media person would love to have, would love to have access to that kind of content to post on all of their social media platforms. How about this? Toss out everything I just mentioned. Let's focus on this specific contest. You have the biggest convergence of KCBS members and potential KCBS members in one location for an extended weekend. Why not spend every second you can with your membership? Ask them what's working, what's not working. What would you like to see improved, tweaked, adjusted? Meet as many members as you can. And maybe some of those members have non-members in tow. You have the opportunity now to gain new members in what I would call a warm environment instead of a cold call situation. So why not take advantage of that opportunity to try and grow the membership at that event specifically 
while also building deeper relationships with the current membership. It's a win-win. So indeed, maybe there is nothing the CEO can do within the workings of the contest, but there's plenty to do outside of that. And yes, I reaffirm my answers from last week. I don't compete. I'm not a certified barbecue judge. Henceforth, I have never tabulated a contest in my life. And I get the point that Rod was trying to make last week. And maybe my thoughts aren't as relevant as I think they are, or they did show my lack of knowledge on that topic. But I can tell you this, for as ignorant as I might be on that particular topic, I do know what a plane wreck looks like. And what happened at the Royal was a plane wreck. And to double down with the, I would bring the same team to the Royal next year, in my opinion, borderline reckless. You would really trot the same team back out there next year after what happened this year? That is a bold statement. Bold. In any event, that puts a bow on this topic. I'm sure it's not the last time we will talk about it here on the show. And I am certainly anxious, as I'm sure many of you are, to see what happens over the course of the year as we build into the 2024 version of the American Royal, and we'll see how that goes. All right, uh, my pal Robert Moss, a new 2023 Barbecue Central Show's guest Hall of Famer, is in the green room, and he is ready to rock. Before we get into that, are you tired of settling for mediocre grilling experiences? It's time to step up your game and bring the ultimate flavor and cooker to the backyard barbecues. Pits and Spits Charcoal Grills offer the highest quality live fire cooking experience you can get in the market today. Using either wood or charcoal, their solid fuel grills produce those classic flavors for when you have the time to fire up the grill and cook for family and friends. With a large adjustable fuel tray, you can raise and lower the fire to control and fine tune the heat. This is their take on the very popular Santa Maria style grill. Check them out online, pitsandspits.com slash BBQ Central Show. That's pitsandspits.com slash BBQ Central Show. By the way, all spelled out. And the pits and the spits is spelled with the double T on the pits and the spits. By the way, if you want to save $150 off a charcoal grill purchase, use promo code charcoal central, all one word, charcoal central at checkout. And you can save exactly $150 off any charcoal grill for sale. Once again, it's pitsandspits.com slash BBQ Central and promo code charcoal central for that discount of $150 off a charcoal grill at Pits and Spits. Origin story time. We're back at it with our monthly guest, Robert Moss. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Casting live from the Barbecue Central Show studios in Cleveland, Ohio. 
You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Once again, here's your host, Greg Rempe. Welcome back. This portion of the show being brought to you by CookinPellets.com, your number one source for quality wood pellets for all your pellet-driven cookers. Visit CookinPellets.com for more information, see what products they offer. And then when it's time to buy, where do I tell you to go? Not CookinPellets.com for great shipping rates, but a same selection of products. You go to Amazon.com, Lowe's.com, or Walmart.com. Again, same stuff to buy just better shipping rates than if you did it on the namesake website. Good folks over at cookingpellets.com. Lining up Chris Becker for an origin story as we speak. My next guest is the contributing barbecue editor for Southern Living Magazine, an accomplished author, restaurant critic, podcast host, and most importantly, as we add things to the introduction titles, 2023 Barbecue Central Show's guest Hall of Famer. Of course, we welcome back Robert Moss. Robert, before we dig into the origin story, we do have a YouTube poll question of the week that we need your answer on immediately, if not sooner. And we're asking everybody this. If money wasn't a factor, or even if money wasn't a factor, you prefer prime over Wagyu beef. Yes, I much prefer prime over Wagyu. All right, well, 40% of us agree with you that we prefer prime <laughs> over Wagyu, but 60% taking it currently. And before we dive into the origin story, do you have any type of acceptance speech that you've worked up here over the last uh, two, three weeks to, uh, you know, talk about this incredible life achievement that you have been garnered with? <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I do have the ring, which I have to say is wow, um, look at that. remarkably understated and elegant. So yes. I, do, I do really appreciate that. Um, I do sort of think this may be the pinnacle of my career. So I may have pretty much accomplished everything there's left or accomplished in the barbecue world. Um, I, I did get my Jack ribbon. So I mm -hmm. am now a KCB, KCBS certified judge. So I did that back in a uh, couple weeks ago. And, and so I think, you know, what, what's left now yeah. I've got the, the Hall of Fame ring. So I think, you know, I can. I can relax for yeah. for a while. You got the cool whip on top of the whole barbecue career at this point. So <laughs> good to know. Let's correct. go ahead and dig into the origin story. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with any of these that we've done in the past over the last handful of years, but we're going to do the deep dive on Robert Moss. So let's start all the way back in the beginning. Where were you born and when were you born? Uh, I was born in 1970 in Decatur, Georgia. Um, though I don't remember Decatur, I moved out, moved from there when I was one year old, but, but I am a Georgian by birth <laughs> and then a South Carolinian for most of the rest of my life. What was family like for you growing up before you got into high school that you remember? Um, yeah, well, my father is, uh, well, he's retired now, but he was a Presbyterian minister. Um, and so we traveled around a good bit, bounced around a good bit when I was young, uh, lived in a couple different small towns in Georgia and South Carolina before we ended up in, in Greenville. Uh, have two brothers. Uh, you know, fa family is still together. My parents have celebrated their gosh, fifty something. They're over fifty now uh, anniversary. So for me, at least, a very you know stable home life. And and um, once we got to Greenville, at least, um, it, I was about ten years old then. Then I sort of you know ha had that as my my hometown. So. Um, yeah, I don't think of it as a particularly interesting or remarkable childhood, but, uh, but I remember you know me being a pretty good childhood. You know, I don't have a lot of 
you know, I have neither great or, or terrible stories to tell about. What kind of a relationship do you recall having with your parents as you're growing up uh, outside of uh, high school years? Um, you mean before or after? Oh, uh, before, the, yeah. High school. Oh, before. Um, gosh, I don't know. I don't think that too much about that that time. I, I had a little more of a, you know, more of a rebellious kid in high school, but I was a pretty, <laughs> you know, pretty good kid up up through, uh, you know, 16, 17, I think, like, like, like most kids. Um, you know, did a lot of sports, a lot of, act lot of activities. And, and so, uh, you know, I, let's say I don't have a lot of great stories from the, from the childhood, but a good relationship all, I think all around with, with my parents. You mentioned you had some other siblings in the house. What was your relationship growing up like with that? Um, well, we're pretty close in, in age. Uh, my older brother is just a year and a half older than me. And my younger is, I think a year, two, two years younger than me. So we were all pretty much pretty close together. We had a lot of, you know, sibling rivalry. We all played sports and played music and, and were pretty competitive with each other, but in a, I think a pretty good, a good nature way. So, um, you know, we, we had a good relationship growing up. We aren't super close now. They all live, um, all over the country, but we, you know, I, I see each other, I see them a couple times a year and, you know, we still, we still stay in touch. What's the high school, Robert Moss? Like you had mentioned that you, got into a little bit of a rebellious stage and high school can be a little bit of an awkward time for a lot of folks. I mean, you either were popular and you had a great time and they were the best years of your life for some of them, or maybe you were a bit ostracized and you find it hard to fit in. What was it like for you? Uh, I changed a lot in high school and there are kids who are that way. I changed physically. I think I entered to high school, um, probably about five foot, maybe five foot two and 110 pounds, the skinniest, tiniest kid in the class. And my sophomore year, I grew 10 inches in a single year <sighs> Wow! Um, and ended up being tall and very skinny. Um, so that, that changed a lot physically there. Um, same thing. I was very shy and, and, you know, socially, you know, awkward, I think in early, early in high school and still, you know, I was still sort of a shy, shy kid, a little bit of a nerdy kid through high school, but, but started to, I think, blossom a lot more as I, as I, as I got older. Um, started off not too interested in in school and academics and the more i was in school the more in high school the more interested i got in studying and you know in, as i got deeper into a range of subjects you know, became much more interested got much better grades as i as i went along um was very much a nerdy kid in middle school i was a computer programmer back in the old days had a TRS-80 color computer, if anybody remembers that, ran a bulletin board system out of my house when I was about, you know, seven years old, or seventh grade, I should say, back when, um, you, you know, it was all you had was dial-up modems, and we only had a yep. single phone line. So I could run the bulletin board between, I think, seven o'clock and nine o'clock at night, because uh, if the phone rang, anybody, the, the modem would pick up, anybody calling us would hear the screech of a modem on it. So that's the sort of the, you know, I got started in computers very early, read a lot of science fiction, all that. So I was a pretty, you know, science geeky kid. But then in high school, I got much more into literature. And this is sort of is relevant to my, bar my barbecue writing eventually. Uh, much more reading, reading a lot of novels and, and reading a lot, of, a lot of different things and sort of move, you know, started developing more of the humanity side of, of the brain, I think you I think you would say, and uh, really got it. I had a lot of great teachers in high school, especially junior and senior year in high school that really inspired me to, to get into learning. So I, I, I think I, I exited high school very different than I was when I, I entered it as a freshman. Were the grades because you knew you were building into having to go into a secondary education, or did you just build an interest 
So by no, it's more more building an interest. I yep. think I was bored when I was younger. I was in, in middle school, and I think when I got to high school, and then you you sort of separate out and you start taking honors and AP classes and all that. I think what the more challenging it got, that's why I rose to the challenge. Um, I, I think if it's it was boring to be early on, so you know I didn't didn't put much effort into it. But at a certain point, I just enjoyed the you know the subject, whether it's calculus or if it was computer science or it was it was English or or history. Um, and really got into it for its own sake. Was really big into actually. It's funny now. I was really big into chemistry and physics, and thought initially I was going to be a like a double physics mathematic ma- math major when I went off to college. But things changed quite a bit. But but I but I was a high school very interested in in learning on my own terms. And I think I had a good group of friends who, and at the same time was we, we were let's say was I didn't mention the rebellious side. You know, we stayed out. We we had did things that seventeen eight year old eighteen year old kids do and got into a lot of trouble. But um, at the same time, I was with a group of people who's, who were very serious about music, very serious about books. And, and, uh, and, and so we sort of mixed the, the, the fun side of life with the, with the studio. So. What kind of music are you into back then? Uh, back then, it's hard to say. So I was actually a musician. I played drums all, all from middle school on. We played in the, you know, the marching band in high school, started playing drum set. I was very much into, I got much more into alt rock kind of stuff when I did, later when I was in, in college and in grad school. But back then I was, I think I was much more into, well, actually, I guess I was into classic, what we call classic rock now. Mm. Got really into p- folks like the Rolling Stones and uh, uh, a lot of the the sixties uh, hippie rock, if you would, um, Grateful Dead and all, and all that kind of stuff. Um, back back then, and of course that, that, that evolved, but I got very much into, and I was even into like a lot of the art rock being a drummer, I wanted to hear the you know all those Berkeley mm-hmm. School music drummers and studio drummers who were were really highly technical. So I really got into sort of geeky music as well. If I hear somebody has a father that is in the religion business, I immediately start to think, man, it must be a strict household. Got to watch your p's and q's. Could be mega rebellious. Was he like that, or was he pretty laid back guy? No, I, th- I think you know, people hear preacher's kid and they think, oh gosh, you know, you must have you know grown up like a it, it, not definitely it's a Presbyterian church. It's it's pretty mild mannered. It's not a, a super fundamentalist church. So um, no, I did, I wasn't raised in a super strict environment, so I didn't have a too much to rebel against. You know, if it, compared to friends of mine who grew up in very religious households, um, but so yeah, sort of a a very moderate <laughs> religious household. So I think I got a good moral compass from it, but I didn't feel like I was restrained or restricted. What's the food scene like in the house as you're growing up? Um, yeah, that's interesting because I, I was, this was really, you know, we're talking about the 1980s here and the food scene in America in general is, a, is very interesting um, <laughs> at that time. Um, my mom is, has always been a very good home cook, uh, cooked lots of things from scratch and so, you know, I grew up having, uh, unlike some of my friends, I, I grew up having a regular family dinner where my, my mother cooked most everything, you know, herself. Um, not to say they never opened cans of cream of mushroom soup and, and stuff like that, but it was, it was pretty good, made her own bread and, and that kind of thing. So I think I got a little introduction to, to good home cooking, I would say, you know, th- through my parents. Uh, and then, of course, that was, that was the era of fast food chains rising. So, you know, when I was outside the house, my, my family did not eat out, eat out at restaurants a lot, yeah. which is a, a interesting dynamic for, for me now because I eat out at restaurants all the time. We very rarely, up until I was probably in high school, we very, rare, very rarely went out to eat 
uh, eat dinner, even if we're traveling somewhere, we, we would usually pack a, a picnic lunch to eat along the way instead of stopping off at fast food. I think part of that was because, uh, you know, Presbyterian ministry did make a lot of money. So I think part of that was, was, was saving money until, you know, my father got farther, farther along in, in the career. But also I think my mother just had that, that reflexive reaction against it, against, uh, mm fancy restaurants and, and all that kind of stuff. So that is one thing I did not grow up with. It was eating it, you know, any kind of things that you, you consider a fancy restaurant or anything like that. So I got lots of good, I'd say good solid home cooking just you know, around the dinner table at home. Was there any live fire cooking being done or barbecue that would have sparked an interest in definitely you? Definitely not what I would call yeah, definitely not what I would call barbecue. No one was you know, I'm not like uh, a lot of my friends who grew up on farms, you know, they they would you know, they would cook all hogs and all that kind of stuff. But we, we lived in suburban Greenville, uh, South South Carolina. So there there was no slow, low and slow. There was no no, no pig cooking going on. Uh, a lot of grilling, though. My grandfather in particular, who died when I was in middle school. But um, uh, while he was still alive, we, we would, you know, spend a lot of time together. And he was always grilling, you know, uh, burgers or steaks or that, that kind of thing. Used the charcoal chimney, which is where I learned how to use a charcoal chimney early on. Mm. Um and returned to it later when I realized how ridiculous lighter fluid and, and all that is and how easy a, a charcoal chimney is. So a lot of grilling, but not a, not much in the way of uh, of barbecue when I was uh, you know, up until I was uh, much older. After you get through high school, are you pretty much set that you're going to go to college? Or did you think about any gap years or maybe you took a gap year or was it straight to no, college? No, there was no question in my yeah. mind that I was going, going on to college. Um, I wasn't pushed into it. It was just sort of just something I, I wanted to do, but I wanted to get as far away from Greenville as I could. And, you know, college was the easy way to do that. We, you know, so I, uh, you know, I was very interested in learning. I wasn't super motivated to like apply to all these colleges and, and do that whole thing. But I, I, I knew I was going to end up, you know, going to college. I ended up going to Florida state down in Tallahassee, which was a good eight hour drive, I think from Greenville. So it was a good long way away from home, which is what I wanted at the time. Um, and just, you know, hit, hit the ground there. And then you may know, yeah, I've spent, gosh, I then proceeded to spend the next 12 years or so in, in academia, oh. uh, from, from, from then. So I, I spent many, many years on, on college campuses after that. When you got on the Florida state's campus, what are you studying right off the bat? Yeah, it was interesting. I, I went down to Florida state initially torn to whether I wanted to do computer science, physics, math, or some combination of all that. It was very, very heavy in the sciences. And one of the reasons I ended up at Florida State is at the time they had a big computer science program with a supercomputer and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And this was before internet. So I actually had one of the first email accounts um, at a time when nobody had email accounts. But if you were in the computer science program, you would get one on the, on the big VAX mini computer system. And it was really just been used for you know, military and academic, you know, sciences discussions. In fact, I had a friend who went to Clemson who was also a computer science. He got an email address and we were like emailing each other, trying to say, hey, you wanna come down and visit? And we got a nasty note from the administrator saying, this email system is for academic purposes only. Oh. So you are not allowed <laughs> to, uh, to uh, organize your weekend over email. You can only talk about serious studious topics. So I was in, um, I was in on the internet before there was the World Wide Web, uh, when before anybody else had it, and, and so it was very early on in the computer world. And that was about uh, you know, the first year of Florida State. And then I um, something flipped in me, and I, I got I got really bored with all that at, at, at some point, and got really interested in literature again. And I took a Russian literature class uh, with 
just sort of randomly with a really good professor that we read all these weird Russian uh, novels and fell in love with it and then decided that really what I wanted to do was study literature. And that <laughs> after being away from home for a year and a half, Greenville didn't seem like such a you know, terrible place anymore. So I ended up transferring back to Furman University oh, yeah, in, yeah. Uh, in Greenville, uh, getting a major in English there. Uh, so I got a BA in English and, and graduated from there in 1992 uh, back, back in Greenville. And then you proceed to go on and get a doctor. Yeah, the rest of my life from there till um, ten, at least ten years later, was really not a result of any kind of planning or, or mm. forethought. I just sort of did what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got a, a firm in, so I waited tables at a restaurant for a little while. I actually graduated a semester early, so I spent a semester just working at a seafood restaurant and trying to figure it out and said, well, this isn't what I want to do long term. And so I applied for the master's program down at, at University of South Carolina to study American Lit there, moved down to Columbia from Greenville um, and then spent the next 10 years in Columbia, liked the master's program, was enjoying studying, didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went on and went into the PhD program and I uh, went on and was uh, and got got to a PhD, almost to the PhD. I finished my um Finished all my classwork and was ABD, as they call it, which I was working my dissertation. And at that point, decided I really didn't want to go into teaching. I didn't want to be a professor, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that was in the early days of the dot-com boom. So I did the natural thing, which is I went back to computers and took my PhD and, and got a job in the in the computer industry. Uh, fortunately, I did finish my dissertation and, and did finish the PhD. But by the time I did, I had long, this was, this was literally in the era of pets.com and the sock puppet, mm. if you remember yep. all those, the, those fun things. And I got swept up into the dot-com uh, days and uh, finished PhD, but went into the, te the tech industry. And uh, that's what I you know, made my career there um, up until even today. I mean, you, uh, a lot of people who know about my writing and barbecue stuff may not realize, but you know, most of my career was, has been spent in the software world. And I still mm. have my own uh, technology consulting company and do, do that as the my my primary line of work uh, uh, even today. So is the PhD in literature? Yeah, PhD <laughs> in American literature. So like I say, it wasn't a well mapped out, thought out plan <laughs> for how I was going to get from point A to point B. Um, while I was working on the, my my PhD, was when the World Wide Web was really first developing and, and crossing over from academics, you know, from the sciences to the larger academic world. So as I was in the humanities program, I sort of got back into computer programming. I started building websites back when you used to build websites by typing the HTML yeah. code and, yeah. and all that. And I, I, um, at the university helps stage a lot of online scholarship, like putting literary scholarship and things online, which both, you know, which got me back into the, to the, 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 uh, the world of computers where I had been earlier in my life. And I ended up writing my dissertation. I did a hypertext edition of uh, the works of Raymond Chandler, who is the uh, uh, great de hardball detective novelist. Philip Marlowe is his detective protagonist. And so I did an electronic edition of The Big Sleep. There was mm -hmm. a, a hypertext edition and wrote a big dissertation about it that is sitting on the shelf still. No one, no one has read it since. But it got me back <laughs> into the world of, of software and, the, and computers. And uh, so I went back that direction. I mean, for, it sounds like you, you had competing passions and depending, uh, I'm going to use this loosely, but depending on where the wind was blowing, you were going back into computers or now I'm going back into the literature thing, uh, neither being the wrong answer, but it sounds like you're able to take advantage of both. Yeah, it's worked out well. I mean, making my 
one thing about being in the technology industry is, you know, is, y- y- it helps if you can program computers. But if you're if you want to get beyond just being an engineer, you also need to be able to talk to people and explain things. And, mm. you know, so you have to sort of use both sides of the brain, which uh, definitely helped me out. I think the more I focus, I can focus on something for a long time. And at some point, I'll get tired of it. I'll sort of wear out and I won't go back to that other area and focus on that over there, which is sort of how I've ended up bouncing back and forth between more of the uh, food writing history you know, side of my, my brain and then go back and, and spend a lot of time uh, deep in the technology. So, Where does the love story happen for you? Do you mean love story as in like my, my wife? Yeah, and, yeah. In that, uh, I met my wife at you know, University of South Carolina. Um, and she was like me, um, ended up in grad school cause she didn't know what, what she wanted to do with her life. And, um, <laughs> so we met each other in the English department. She was actually originally getting a master's of English, which is how we met. Um, and she ended up staying in Columbia and then we sort of, you know, started dating and then got engaged, et cetera. Um, and then she went and worked for a while doing various things. And then she went back to the library school. So if you see all the books behind us, our house is littered with books. She ended up getting a master's of library, library science at, at University of South Carolina, and then became a librarian uh, after she after she graduated, a reference librarian in particular. And uh, so I married a librarian, and and uh, we met in in, uh, in grad school, and have been together ever since. Just celebrating our twenty fifth anniversary. About, really, uh, a right. month ago. Very nice. Yeah. I'm only. I think I'm. Uh, ooh. Now I got to do math in my head. Ninety seven for. <laughs> I think I'm coming. It'll be twenty seven years. Uh, next October, so I'm a, a year ahead of you. Yeah, we're at that stage where we did a big event for or a big dinner out for the 20th and the big night out for the 25th, and then in between, it's just sort of like, yeah, life. The, the 23rd's not a not a <laughs> not a big <laughs> big anniversary. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Robert, can I put you on hold for one second? We'll come back and yep, finish sure up the rest of your life. We're on standby. We're talking with Robert Moss, robertfmoss.com, and as we've just learned, is a computer consultant, and that's the lion's share of the business. Who knew? I thought barbecue was the lion's share of the business. I didn't even know he's doing computers. Maybe he's got some suggestions for me. We'll talk offline, Robert. I have a read for a primo cooker right here. But forget about it. Sunday it was going to be Saturday, but it ended up being Sunday. I ordered two racks of ribs from our pal Aaron Huntelman. He brought them over Saturday. Now, the worst part of the story is I was home and I didn't hear him ring the doorbell. So he dropped it off in the refrigerator and then I went out a couple hours later and I was like, wow. Here I thought we were building this relationship and he dropped the meat and ran again. What went wrong? But he told me, hey, look, I was car was there, rang the doorbell, blah, blah, blah. Who cares about any of that? Go right to the Primo, fire it up. I'm really learning how to capture the heat on the way up. So no overshooting, locked it right in around 270, 275, rub the ribs down with Big Papa's sweet money, and then on to the cooker. Hit a few pieces of applewood in there for wood smoke. Now, I filled a spray bottle with water and apple cider vinegar just for the thought was to spritz every hour or so just to keep the bark nice and pliable. I'm not a big stiff bark guy on ribs. And what 
Nick Bauer told me the first time I cooked on the ceramic, he said, wow, it appears to be a very humid environment. He said, yes, when the ceramics heat up, it does produce a humid environment. You're probably not going to need any spray or any mop or anything like that. So I paid attention this time out. No spray needed. The ribs were cooking perfectly, had the deflector plate in there, used normal lump charcoal by whatever brand. The thing hung in there, uh, put them on at 1.30. At 5.15, they're coming off. Did a little wrap procedure about three hours into it just to tenderize them. Wow. This Primo is unbelievable. Next day, put all the unlit charcoal over to the side, dropped the lighter cube in there, did some uh, reheat some of the ribs in the foil, but then also did four pieces of chicken. This thing's fabulous. I got so much charcoal left over, I can do another long cook if I wanted to. And I can just move the charcoal around one side, both sides, split it up. You got to get one. I'm telling you right now, holiday season is here. whoop de doo and dickery doc. Get yourself a Primo that doesn't rhyme. Only sold through dealers. Primogrill.com. That's Primogrill.com. Look at the ovals. They'll change your life. Take it from me. We're back with Robert Moss. Stick around. We'll be right back. Howard Stern, Jim Rome, Dan Patrick, and Greg Rampey. The Mountain Rushmore of talk show entertainment. Now, let's get back to the Barbecue Central Show. All right, welcome back. This portion of the show being brought to you by Fireboard. You can monitor up to six different temperatures simultaneously. You can connect to Wi-Fi for cloud-based monitoring. You can connect via Bluetooth if you'd like. If you have smart speakers in your home, Fireboard's fully integrated with most of those as well. Go to fireboard.com, call 816-945-2232. And in two weeks' time, Ted Conrad will be right here as we talk more about that Fireboard beacon that they were talking about releasing last time he was on about a month and a half ago. So stay tuned for that, and we're rejoined by Robert Moss. So we talked about you getting married. Any kids? Yep, I have, I have two kids, uh, though they're hardly kids anymore. The oldest is just turned 23, and the mm-hmm. youngest is 17. He's a senior in high school, so we've got basically one year left uh, with uh, before we're, we're empty nesters. So uh, we now have two two large boys, and the youngest is now like six foot two and towers mm-hmm. over me. So. so we have similar aged kids. My oldest is going to be 23 this coming May, and I have one graduating high school this year as well. I also have uh, one in the middle who's going to be graduating college a year early this uh, coming spring. What's been the biggest reward and what's been the biggest challenge raising boys? Oh, geez. Um, I hadn't thought about that one. I mean, there, there are lots of challenges to it. I think, you know, um, my older son is probably a lot like me, and it can be a challenge with just once he you know sort of got up. I think the hardest part is when um, it's 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 a similar but different with with the younger one. But when when they get old enough to drive and hop in the car and disappear, you know, I think with boys at least that there's a there's a challenge there of just you know wanting. That, that balance between wanting to let them go and live their lives and, and fly on their own, but also realizing that, you know, gosh, their brains just aren't developed yet mm. in the things that who, the things that they were doing. So it's a lot of worry behind the scenes and then a lot of the occasional 
uh, annoyances that, that come with, uh, with, with, with teenage boys. I think that's the hardest thing that and generally the, just the general filthiness and squalor of, uh, of teenage boys can be, you know, it's like raising, raising apes. So, but it's sort of just, it's, I think it's, 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 it's waiting them out really, you know, and, and, uh, and dealing with, you know, dealing with young men without a, a lot of sense of responsibility or, or, uh, hygiene or things like that. When you look back at specifically how your dad and your relationship was, and now you look at the relationship you have with your two sons, and quite honestly, you could have completely different relationships with your two sons, but looking back at your experience with your father and you being a father now, how do they compare and contrast? Um, that's, that's a good question. I think, I think they're similar in, in some ways. I think people, you know, Growing up in, you know, in in the seventies and eighties, you know, parents did they were not helicopter parents. At least there were very few helicopter parents, and and they they tended to let you know kick you out of the house and let you go roam and spend a lot of time out outside. So I think that um, you know my, my father in particular was very involved with us because me my my two brothers and I were very involved in a ton of activities, whether it was athletics or uh, or music or all that kind of stuff. And he was always driving us places and going on. Uh, we were all big into uh, into cross country tracks, so or going to track meets and things like that, and taking us to soccer practice and doing doing all this kind of things. Um, so so he was involved and in, in, in engaged, but never really pushed us. And I think I've sort of taken a similar tack if I look at it, which is I've not. You know, I tried to support both boys and doing what they want to do, but not push them to be what I want them to be. Mm -hmm. Let them sort of develop on that and support. And it's hard at this day and age because with you know cell phones and everything else, you know, the temptation is to track people everywhere they go. It's one of the hard things is just you know as they get up, letting them go off and, and and be on their own and and develop a little bit without letting them you know completely crash and fall off the <laughs> fall off the high beam, if you will. You don't track them on your phone. Uh, I could, but I, I do not. No, uh, I feel like that's, and, and I, I don't think you need to. I think it creates uh, nothing but anxiety on the parent side, and does not do anything to help uh, build independence and self confidence on the on the kids. Side. Are you paying for their cell phones still? Uh, I am still paying for for their cell phones, including the twenty three year olds, but only because I can add him as a line on my plan for really cheap, and it's just. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, I told um, my kids uh, but, uh, when you when you want us to stop having the ability to look at your location, you start yeah. paying for that phone. Oddly enough, I'm still able to track where their location is. <laughs> I can do it, and if I ever need to, I, I I could if I really needed to find them. Um, but as a general matter, I don't. I do a little bit of the la 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 la. I don't want to know what's happening. Um, and which is. Probably the football. Well, with a twenty-three-year-old son, uh, I don't need to know where he he, he is because yeah. it's there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, he's actually a musician. He's playing in bands. He's touring all over the, the southeast now. So right. you know, I'm just I'm just going to just got trust he'll be okay. The only reason I'm paying for the phone is because it would cost him a lot of money if uh, for him to to get his own line compared to me paying twenty bucks for it. How do you break into the live fire world? Oh, so I came into it from the academic side of things and from uh, writing books. And um, I think without going into too much detail, I was in the computer business basically from 1997 
and then moved down to Charleston in 2002 to get a job at uh, Blackballed, which is a big software company here. And then sort of spent 20 years rising up the ranks, becoming an executive and, and then jumped to another technology company. So I, I spent a lot, you know, th and that's a pretty intense time, you know, so I spent a lot of time just, you know, building that professional career. But along the side of doing all that, I still kept an interest in reading and, and research and all that. And as I was getting through my PhD at, at South Carolina, I got much more interested in history than I did literature. So I started reading a lot of history. I was eating a lot of barbecue. I got really interested in old barbecue joints and was driving around and, and eating uh, barbecue and a lot of other things, just sort of classic old, old restaurants. Um, and so while I was, I finished up my dissertation and got my PhD, well, you know, while I was working in the computer industry, but just as sort of a hobby, I said, well, you know, what's my next, pro next project going to be? I wanted to work on some kind of research project is on the side. And so I said, I went to the library and went to the University of South Carolina Library, which has millions of books, uh, back a research library, and said, I'll, I'll find a book on history of barbecue and read that. That should be good. And there wasn't a book on the history of barbecue. Um, the best I could find was, and I had spent a lot, you know, many years doing very detailed historical research, more on the literary side of things. Um, and so I started looking into it and, you know, there've been people had written books about like history of food with a couple pages on barbecue. And there'd been some books written about like restaurants 20 in the 20th century, but no, almost nobody had written anything about the 19th century, uh, barbecue. And, and, um, I decided, well, I'll, I'll research into, into that more. So I started taking some of the same techniques I'd learned in, uh, studying literary history and started digging into culinary history and discovered that there's a huge world of barbecue in the 19th century and back to the colonial era and uh found more and more and more and i said okay well, i guess i need to write that book and it took me 10 years it wasn't published until 2010 um but i you know i finally got it out there um since then a number of people have written additional uh, barbecue histories but that was the first really first book that tr treated it in depth and the first book to really dig into the 19th century and 18th century and so that sort of got me into culinary history um along the way as that book was finishing up and it takes a while for it to go through the process um i started writing a food blog this was after i moved to charleston charleston has a great dining scene i happened to move here right as that dining scene was really taking off and getting national and then international attention and so i was just writing a food blog in the early days of blogs back in the blogger platform um back when you could do that and actually you know there was no twitter at that point there was no social media um, but blogs were very exciting and you could have conversations with people and, and share links and all that kind of stuff. And so I started writing this food blog is mostly about just restaurants and things I was eating. And then uh, from that, I, I got got in touch with the, or the, the editor of the Charleston City Paper got in touch with me and um, said, uh, you know, we look, we need food writers, you know, like your, your blog, you're interested in it. And so I started writing some stuff for them, became one of their two restaurant critics and then became their senior restaurant critic, uh, reviewing restaurants here in Charleston. <laughs> um, the barbecue book came out. And so I started writing more about, about barbecue, uh, you know, for the city paper here, but then for other publications, it just sort of grew organically, if you will, uh, until I, uh, Hunter Lewis, who at the time was the managing editor of Southern Living and I, uh, sort of ran into each other. We were seated at the same table at a, Charleston wine and food event here and started struck up a conversation. He was like, well, you're trying to do more barbecue coverage at, at Southern Living. Maybe you like to write for us. And then, <laughs> yeah, the rest of you know, it sort of developed into the contributing barbecue editor gig. And um, that, that's sort of how I got into it. Is that a contractor's position? The edit editor? Yeah, it, for, yeah. for me, now, like, yeah, and that's why it says contributing barbecue editor. Yeah. Um, I, we, when they first had me come on board, Daniel Vaughn had just been hired as the barbecue editor. At Texas Monthly, 
Um, and I really wanted them to make me the senior barbecue editor at Southern Living because I thought that would just be a great way to like stick it to Daniel. Um, but it turns out you can't do that because if you're going to have that title, you have to be a full-time staff member. Uh, a, a barbecue editor. Just for a title? Be in, yeah, the titles are very important in the wow. in the journalism in the world of journalism uh, <laughs> in magazines because they don't you know there's not a lot else you know titles and plaques are very big you know they're very big on reward ceremonies yeah. and things like that not a lot of money um so I couldn't <laughs> uh, they, you know if you can't make money you can you can at least get a nice plaque uh, <laughs> out of it but um so I couldn't be the senior barbecue editor so I had to be the contributing barbecue editor because mm. that indicates that I, I'm not a full time staffer I am uh -huh. a freelancer. Uh, independent contractor i just get paid per piece yeah but we, we have a regular you know regular gig but it, but i'm not on I'm, i don't get a salary i get paid each time i write something it's funny that both you and daniel follow a similar track and that his whole scene started around i forget what the name was full custom gospel barbecue full or, custom gospel barbecue yeah. yeah he started off blogging he was very he was specifically barbecue reviewing yeah. barbecue joints yeah. i was more general restaurants talking about restaurants but barbecue was among them but yeah and that was how a lot of people got into the business in 2005 to 2010 was through the was through the, the blogging route how have you seen the journalism and writing world change over the time you've been doing it yeah i'll try not to get too despairing on it because I, I think you know it's 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 pretty bleak it's it's changed for the worse um for sure uh there was a short window of 20 years maybe where there was a lot of money in newspapers and magazines um this is before craigslist and you know so classified ads were just uh, a, a hose full of money in, in, into the, your typical local newspapers. There was no Instagram brands advertised in magazines, full page, glossy photos. I mean, that that's there was lots of money uh, revenue flowing in um, at a time where there was a lot of consolidation in the industry. Most cities used to have two, three, four daily papers. They all consolidated until there was one. So there was this period where the local local daily had a lock on the market, the magazines really were big and you had your big brand magazines could really charge top rates and then they could really pay, afford to pay writers a lot of money. So, um, and then I got into it and it's, it's curious that the blogs was sort of the route that Daniel and I and others have, have got into it through that blogging route because that was a way for you to sort of break into writing mm. without having to actually get through the gatekeeper of an, of an editor. Um, yeah, I started submitting things well before I started doing the blog, I would write a piece and you'd submit it and it would sit and you'd never hear anything back. And it was really hard to get published, you know, you, the first time. Blogging lets you get up and, and sort of cut your teeth. But a lot, a lot more people into the industry. And so at, at a time it looked like, oh, this is this great new channel. It's gonna let a lot of things into it. But then um, the step-by-step, step, the the revenue model of, of newspapers and magazines has just been broken by the internet or, or swiped, swiped away by the internet. Um, and magazines are, and, and newspapers are all just really cutting quarters and everything else. So um, the internet is a, a very difficult place. I think lots of newspapers and magazines have, have kept pivoting. They would pivot to video, they would pivot mm -hmm. to this, they would pivot to that, um, as social media became the front door to the internet and you had to break through the noise. And it's, it, that's where clickbait and lists and all that stuff uh, has come from. 
and the markets for paying you know if you're if you want to make money writing uh, about food it's harder and harder and harder and the the checks are smaller and smaller um, so so it's not a it's not something that I think there's a there's a million content creators now mm -hmm. uh, around food um and there's not a whole lot of people making any money doing it um so it's uh it's it's not a it's not something i would uh consider a a great career for people it's a great hobby if you enjoy doing it there's a great way to do it but it's not a great way to you know pay a mortgage and raise a family and put put them through school and all that good stuff are you concerned with leaving any type of legacy behind you Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think you don't write stuff and launch it out in the world unless you want people to read it and you want to, you know, them to sort of remember your name. I, you know, to me, um, you know, I think the books ultimately, hopefully, will be a legacy on, on the on the food writing side of things. I think that those are the things that will last the longest. I don't know how long the barbecue history or, or my my southern food histories will will last, but they'll they'll be relevant for a while. Um, but I think it's you know that, that's that's. I think it's less like a legacy in the sense that I want to be remembered and have like statues and things like that. But I would like to have something live after me that, you know, that, that, you know, like a book on the shelf that someone down the road may pick up and read and, uh, yeah, and find value in that, that would be a nice legacy. You've known him for a decent amount of time now as the nine thirty-five guest the second tuesday of the month giving us great information on barbecue and now you know way more about our pal robert moss the origin story here as we come to conclusion robert appreciate the time here this evening anything else you'd like to mention or promote as we head out of here uh nothing to promote right now um or, or mention i do again do appreciate the ring and the uh the 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 guest hall of fame uh nod that was that was very nice and um i do want to look forward to when i come back you know I, I, lots of thoughts coming back from the jack and coming back you know, and then all the american royal stuff about mm -hmm. kcbs and barbecue competitions and all that so yeah not not a, a subject for today but maybe uh for for december we, we can uh wait on that because i've been thinking a lot about barbecue competitions in the past few weeks all right we'll put that in for december's outline and some other things as well this is our pal robert moss robertfmoss.com the website robert appreciate the extended time tonight and we'll see you in december all right thanks greg i appreciate it you got it robert moss right there and happy thanksgiving by the way ron great extended segment yes and we've learned a lot more about robert than we ever knew before which i certainly appreciate all right, we're going to catch up here, hopefully, and do a nice top of the second hour intro. So stick around, and we'll be right back. Continuing to produce incredibly mediocre content in an exceptionally professional way. You're listening and watching the Barbecue Central Show. Once again, here's your host, Greg Rampey. And we thank Robert Moss for joining us last segment. RobertFMoss.com is the website, a 2023 Barbecue Central Show's guest Hall of Famer. Yes, indeedy. One of what will be four, hopefully, origin stories as we race through the next handful of months. Again, we don't do Rusty Monson because Rusty Monson did an origin story a couple of years ago when we first started rolling these out. 
So hopefully you enjoyed that extended peek into the world and life of our pal Robert Moss. Second Tuesday of the month, regular guest in the 35 past the hour segment. Right, we are heading to the second hour where we have a great 60 minutes of barbecue-related content for you, amongst other things. So stick around, refresh your libations, and we'll be right back.